This podcast, number 820, with Claire Willis, is brought to you by Guy Finley, author and founder of Life of Learning Foundation, for his new e-course entitled, Secrets of Success Without Stress. In this interview, Guy advises us on how to change our thinking to better cope and understand how we create our own stress. With this e-course, you have access to the information you can use to change your relationship with every event and person you meet, leading to a stress-free life. Please join Guy and Greg in this mind-blending interview as they explore the secrets of success without stress on podcast number 812. If you want to learn more about Guy Finley and his e-course, please visit his website at www.guyfinley.org. That's G-U-Y-F-I-N-L-E-Y dot O-R-G. And now, for a featured podcast, please listen to Greg and Claire about the new book entitled, Opening to Grief, Finding Your Way from Loss to Peace. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And Claire, as I do every time I come on one of these shows, I have to thank the listeners who come from around the world. Every time I look at the statistics of the number of people that are listening from everywhere, South Africa and India and wherever, it just amazes me. And thank you all for listening. And today, joining us uh, from, now, where are you this morning, Claire? I'm on Cape Cod. Cape Cod this morning um, is uh, Claire B. Willis, and Claire has co-authored a book called Opening to Grief, Finding Your Way from Loss to Peace. And in the times that we have right now, Claire, obviously this is an important topic, so I appreciate you coming on, spending a little time with our listeners. Um, And her co-author is uh, Maureen, is it Maureen Samuelson? Marnie. Marnie. Marnie Samuelson. And Marnie couldn't be with us this morning, but uh, we want to take a reach out to her and thank her uh, for putting all the effort that both of them put into this book uh, to give our listeners and the readers um, an idea of what it is like to grieve. Well, you know, um, I'm going to let our listeners know a bit about you, Claire. She's a clinical social worker who's worked in the fields of oncology and bereavement for more than 20 years. She's a co-founder of the Boston nonprofit Facing Cancer Together. Uh, Claire has led bereavement, end-of-life support, and therapeutic writing groups. She's also taught spiritual resources for healing the mind, body, and soul at Anover Newton Theological School. She maintains a private practice in Brookline, Massachusetts as a lay uh, Buddhist chaplain ordained by Joan Halifax at, and what is the, how do you say that? The Zen Center in Santa Fe? Upaya. 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 She focuses on contemplative practices for end of life. For the past five years, she's been the student of Koshkin uh, Ellison, Koshin, uh, founding teacher at the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care. Uh, And this book is, she's written other books. One of them is called Lasting Words, a Finding a Guide, or I should say, a guide to finding meaning toward the close of life. We can find more information about this book, all of my listeners, at openingtogrief.com. 
uh, there. You can actually get some excerpts from the book. Uh, you can go to their homepage and learn more about them. You can learn about the events and the resources. It's a great little website for the book. So I'm going to encourage all of my listeners, Claire, to go to openingtogrief.com. Well, Claire, uh, in the midst of this pandemic, we might as well start there because it's a big topic this morning. The president was just diagnosed with COVID. Um, and there's obviously been a lot of grief. Grief comes in many different ways. Um, but this pandemic has brought grief not only because we've lost over 200,000 lives and all those families who in those hospitals never got to see their loved ones uh, before they passed, but grieving of a lot of loss of a lot of things that have made people angry. Um, you know, grieving over the fact that they can't go to restaurants anymore. I know it kind of sounds weird, but, or they can't get to the gym. Um, and it's really played havoc with people's minds. What would you try and tell people today to help them ease this grieving they're going through as a result of the pandemic? Well, I think the first thing I would say is allow yourself to grieve. Um, one of the things that's happened is this pandemic has opened up the concept of grief in a way that everybody knows something about it. It's brought not only personal losses and deaths, but it's brought a loss of life as we've known it. And it's also resurrected old griefs that people likely haven't grieved. So it, the, the losses engendered by this pandemic are multi-layered. Um, the message of the book and what I would say to people about grieving is to allow yourself to grieve. Find somebody with whom you can share your grief because what we resist will persist. And mm -hmm. there's a lot to be so sad about. Um, and so true. When we so give true. voice to grief and we allow it to find it, its way into expression, we move through it in a different way. And it basically usually can open our hearts more deeply to ourselves with tenderness and kindness and to one another because we see other people feeling the same thing we feel. Well, you know, being a Buddhist and a Buddhist, uh Zen, practicing Zen Buddhist, you come at this in a completely different way than a lot of people would. What are some of the practices that you would recommend for people um, who are going through grieving um, that might be interested in, you know, reaching out and doing some meditation or writing or some of the things that can help them in the grieving process? Oh, that's a great question. I think the first thing I would say is, um, well, let me just say before I say what that my thought is about this. I want to just say that for most of us, when we're anxious and grieving, there's a lot of fear that often accompanies that feeling. And our minds can race into the future and project things that may never happen or we look back, but we're very seldom in the moment where we are. And so the first thing I would suggest is to begin to watch your breath. See if you can concentrate on your breath for even two to three breaths so that you're in the moment. That's a really hard thing to do. There's a New Yorker cartoon that has a bunch of people sitting on the floor, cross-legged, um, looking like they're meditating, and there's bubbles coming out of each head. And one says, I forget, forgot to get broccoli at the market. And another one says, oh, I've got to call my wife as soon as I'm done sitting. And the third one says, I'll bet everybody in the room can do this but me. So I, I think just 
starting to become aware of your breath um, is one way to bring yourself into the moment and begin to try to steady your mind. Another practice that I've found really helpful and is very easy is what I called um, loving kindness medica- meditation or meta meditation. And that's where you create phrases of aspiration of kindness. So some examples would be, may I be free of fear? Um, may I have strength for my journey? May I have self-compassion? Or may I allow myself to grieve? I think that those two practices are pretty important and relatively simple, but not easy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the one where we tether words to our thoughts is a little bit easier because it structures the mind. But I think sending blessings to ourselves during this really tender time is an important practice. What would you say, again, from coming from perspective of Zen Buddhist and, you know, you being chaplain and you doing bereavement counseling and so on. Um, one of the precepts, you know, I remember the Four Noble Truths, but I also remember, obviously, because I'm in a similar philosophy, uh, being a devotee of Self-Realization Fellowship, that, um, you know, this attachment, the the release of attachment of things, you know, we have a tendency in the Western world to get very attached. So if somebody loses, I'm going to just use this, I'll go all the way from maybe losing their house because they couldn't make the payment, to losing a pet, to losing a loved one. But because of the strong attachment based on whether it was the house because it was a material thing or this emotional attachment to a pet or a loved one, how do you advise somebody about this concept even from your philosophy as a Zen Buddhist to say, you know, that's one of the things that we don't want you to do through life is have this super strong attachment. Well, I think um, I think it's unrealistic, actually, um, Greg, to think that we're not going to attach. I think where it becomes problematic is when we cling to our attachments. And one of the things that my teacher speaks about a lot is that um, our preferences are the source of our suffering. So mm-hmm. I think it's okay to be attached, but then when that thing or that person passes, it's our insistence on everything being permanent that creates our suffering. So, so our permanence, we... because you know the, our permanence and our finitude. I mean, I just yeah. did a book on the lost art of dying from a physician, and it, it's interesting if you look back in the 1500s how we died versus how people die today, 90% die in hospitals. I know. Right? Yes, I know. And it's not the most ideal place to die. No one wants to die in a hospital, hardly anybody. Right. But so that I, gets I, us into another topic of well, I understand, preparation. But, but, but finitude and grief, you know, you look at this, I can, I'll, I'll relate a personal quick story and maybe you can, this will help our listeners. In the last 11 months, I've lost two brothers. Okay. Wow. Um, one just two weeks ago that I had to pull oh. the plug on. Oh. And so, you know, when when I look at it, even though I wasn't super close to that brother, and there were there were a lot of problems in the relationship, I find my mind wandering back to 
the times when we were kids together and slept in the same room and mm. the things we did together. And, you know, I see myself there and I feel this sadness because I and another brother, mm. there were four of us, had to make the decision because the doctor said we can't prolong this to mm. actually, you know, pull that plug. Um, when you make that decision, it's a different kind of situation. What advice would you give people who have been not only put in that position, but maybe have had major losses, people who lose people in plane crashes where there's more than one or automobile accidents? Um, how do you, how do you help them cope with that using some of your Buddhist practices? I think the, the first um, thing I would say is um, the practice of kindness and compassion. To that, yourself. And, uh, yes. And I, yeah. I want to say to you, that's such a painful position you were put in. Yeah. And I only hope that there's some peace that it was the right thing. Um, that's a really tough one. But oftentimes our culture is about sort of suck it up and get on with life. Get over it. And there's not a lot of support in our culture for lingering with sorrow, letting it run its course, and being compassionate and tender towards that sorrow. So I think the first thing I would say is to practice kindness and self-compassion. And even that's where a meta-meditation practice would come in um, and be helpful to somebody, I think. Um, The second thing is there are different chapters in the book that... I think would be helpful too, just for helping to hold the grief. One is um, spending time in beautiful places, letting mm-hmm. nature, letting um, finding what, what the Kaplan's in their research called restorative environments, where there's a calming and nothing is asked of you. When we go into the natural world, there's a relaxation. Our eyes rest, our body rests, our minds rest, and that's why people are so drawn to the actual outside world and have been especially since COVID. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, So those are just two things I would say right offhand, make sure to be outside. Nature is definitely one way to do that. Uh, Writing and journaling is another way. Meditation is another way. Uh, I even say listening to music, whatever type of music it is that you like is another way. There's all kinds of ways to do it or getting yourself in a community of support, which you recommend as well. Um, So let me ask you this question. You know, it's like, I don't know if men and women grieve the same way. And I know we have the same emotions, but I think men throughout their life have been said, suck it up right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to be strong. And even me at this point in my life, you know, I'm in my mid sixties and I've lost a couple of brothers, very, very close to one another. It, I'm wondering, you know, for the people out there that are thinking, what is this grieving process? What is this supposed to be like? And it's not the same thing for everybody, is it? No. It's not. I I always say that grief has as many different faces as there are people who grieve. Mm -hmm. Um, For some people, the feelings are despair and anger and loneliness. Anxiety is a big one. Um, For others, where they've witnessed the longstanding suffering of a loved one, it might be relief, it might be gratitude, it might be joy even, that it has as many different faces as there are people that grieve. 
Joan Wickersham, uh, who wrote a Boston uh, opinion piece, she has a column in the Boston Globe, describes an interesting thing where she is at a cocktail party and there's a man there who has lost his wife a year ago and has since remarried a friend of his wife's. And there's another woman there who lost her husband four years ago. And every time she meets a new person, she refers to her husband. And her comment at the end of this column is, both of these are expressions of grief. Mm -hmm. So to your question about men and women, you know, I think we don't socialize our men to be as expressive as we do our women. So when I look at my practice and I look at my bereavement group, it's almost always uh, completely women with a smattering of men. And I think a lot of that is just the way, as you said, we've socialized our 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 men to be less expressive and women have more permission to be expressive. You know, when a man cries, it has a different impact than when a woman cries. Right. And in the groups, often what I hear, which is really sad, is some will break down in a group and say, oh, I'm so sorry. And I think to myself, if you say I'm sorry in a bereavement group, that's such a statement about the culture and the norms and what's expected of us. Because where else are you going to cry if you can't cry in a bereavement group? Oh, yeah. Apologizing for tears is so common. It's so common. I think probably more common with men. Um, and I'm sure women do say it as well. Yeah. Um, what would you tell, you know, I know I'm, I'm going through my own process. I can't explain it but your book helped a lot. So thank you. Um, but you know, I've, because there's a lot of listeners, I'm sure who have family members. I think, you know, people in, come into together in families for lessons to be learned. And sometimes they're tough lessons. Um, and you don't, you're not always as close, but sometimes you're closer to a pet and you cry more over a pet's release or loss than you do over uh, somebody, a family member. Is Does that sound weird to you? But I've lost pets and had way more emotion and grief where it just struck me crazy because I was so close to the animal. Yeah, I recently lost a pet. Um, and I think it was one of the more substantial losses in my life. You know, I, I hear this a lot, and people are often ashamed to admit that that the loss they feel, the grief they feel for the loss of their pet is far greater than the grief they may have felt for the loss of a parent or a, or a sibling or a friend. The love we have for pets is pure, it's simple, it's unconditional. There's mm -hmm. nothing complicated about it. Our relationships with people, no matter how much we love and care for them, always have complexities. They mm -hmm. have histories. They have many things that bring the grief into a more complicated uh, expression. When we lose a pet, it's pure sorrow. There's yeah. no, there's usually no guilt unless there's been a traumatic end or, or resentment for the care. It's, it's just different. And I try to say to people, it's not more or less. It's just qualitatively different and it has a different expression. Yeah. Well, you know, right here close to my town was, uh, where Elizabeth Kubler Ross, uh, had her center. And, uh -huh, um, uh -huh. I know that it's mentioned, uh, about, you know, her five stage linear model of grieving process. And sometimes people, um, 
apologized for the fact that they haven't gone through denial or anger or bargaining or depression or acceptance or whatever it was. And and she didn't mean it that way, right? So can you maybe give our listeners who've read many of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, she's she's very well written. There's lots of things out there people can find um, about this grieving process. I think she was identifying stages but I will tell you, it doesn't go that way. It isn't like it isn't like that. But what what would you tell people? Well, first of all, this is why I wrote the book because I get this question in my work, both in my private practice and in my group work, all the time. Am I grieving right? Is this normal? That's another one. I'm not. I thought I was at this stage, and I'm now. I find I'm at this stage. So just for clarification, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's work is wonderful, but when she wrote it, she wrote it for people who were dying. It was never meant to be overlaid on the bereavement process. Having said that, there are some ways in which those stages do follow, but they're never meant to be linear, and they're never meant to be inclusive. So someone might only be angry at one point, or someone might be only, only experience the denial. It's, it's, they're guideposts that aren't sequential, and we don't necessarily touch into all of them. But I think this good work has had in some ways a tough impact on some people who hold their process to that. So one of the things that's sort of interesting, um, I, I, this is a comment I hear a lot. I thought I was doing okay, and then I was walking down the supermarket aisle, and I saw a can of tuna fish, and I lost it. Mm-hmm. And I say, you didn't lose it. You got it. You got the magnitude of the loss. Stephen Levine talks about how looking at the death or looking at loss is like looking at the sun. We look, we turn away, we look, we turn away. If we stare at it, it'll burn our eyes. The psyche can't withstand it. So we have these waves of grief that come and go. And there's even a word for it called STUG. It's an acronym. It's not a word, actually. Sudden Temporary Upsurge of Grief. And it comes with people who are grieving, and it's normal, and it doesn't mean you've had a setback. It means you're, you're gotten closer to the reality of what happened, and the thing to do is to name it, acknowledge it for what it is, and invariably it passes in 24 hours. Hmm. But that's a, that's a common thing I hear. I lost it. I really lost it. I thought I was doing well, and I always say, you're doing fine. And you didn't lose it. You got it. Well, it, it, again, it's how you express it, emote it, uh, let it out, um, let go of it, um, and give yourself permission to be okay yeah. with it. Allow um, it, yes. Yeah, I, I think it is most of life is about, you know, how much are we shoving under the carpet or, you know, holding back right. versus how much we're letting go. You know, I've got a quote on my wall here from Dalai Lama about, you know, how to let go. And I, th- I think that th- how does someone know or would someone know uh, because they're either depressed or they're anxious or they're having all kinds of other symptoms about whatever loss it might be to say, hey, it's time to uh, find um, or consult with someone like yourself. I think there 
you know, going to someone like you because they don't really know um, and finding a counselor is probably the last thing they do. Um, What would you tell our listeners out there that might be dealing with this about, you know, reaching out and finding somebody? Um, I think what I would tell our listeners is that um, part of the grief process is allowing it and finding support for it. And there are troublesome signs um, that can that can be markers for needing professional help. For instance, the desire not to live any longer, mm-hmm. or getting in bed and sleeping all the time and not wa- pulling the shades down, not wanting to go out, or starting to drink too much, or not able to work. Um, I think this is a it's really a tricky thing. I think. A lot of people in my practice seek support even when they're not in trouble just to get go through the process. And I think one of the best ways to find support is a bereavement group because the privatization of pain in our culture is one of the things that contributes to the shame. And when we feel shame, we can't bring what we're feeling to light because we need to push it down. And so I'm, I'm a big proponent of bereavement groups where people can almost finish one another's sentences. You know, I, one of the things that I hear a lot is, I'm going to say something in here that I can only say it to these people here because you understand. Mm-hmm. And how comforting that is. So, for instance, a couple of weeks ago, someone said to me, um, I just lost my dog of 14 years. I had to put her down and I want to tell you what I'm doing and I wouldn't tell anybody else. And she said, I'm sleeping with his favorite toy. Mm -hmm. That was so touching to me. And what happens in a group is people see that what they're doing is often everybody's doing it. So sometimes I'll say in my groups, I don't say, is anybody talking to your loved one who died? I say, how many of you are talking to the loved one who died? Because in, that normalizes that. Yeah, I think that. that and most people are. With, sleeping with the toy wasn't a bad thing. You know, I lost a dog named Bailey. This was quite a while ago. But for a year, uh, his collar was on my bedpost. So every time I would go to bed, it reminded me of Bailey. Um, that was my way of, of kind of keeping him in my memory, right? Yes. Yeah, You know, that's so interesting. I, I have done something very similar with my dog I put down in March. But there's a word for this. That these are, um, There's a woman who, I was reading about this woman the other day whose dog died, and she, every morning she changed the water for the water dish after he he died. And it's a heart memory. Right. And it's a, it's a, it's a memory gesture, and it's really important to do those things that comfort you. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's true when you say that about the water, because for me, it was he, he was kind of a hound doggy dog, and he used to shake his head, and his tags would rattle. And oh. the tags were from the, so it's these little connections that you make, yeah. the tags on his collar were yeah. what hung on the bedpost, and I would rattle them, right? So it was, oh, I it, love it. It's, That's it's so really sweet. Yeah, it was just, it was just, uh, and it always brought me fond memories, which was important. Now, I've touched on this a little bit. Can I, can I just say one more thing, Greg, about sure. this? Because this is reminding me of Joan Didion's book, The Year of Magical Thinking. 
And I want to just tell you a little anecdote. Uh, so I put my beloved pooch down on March 1st, not knowing uh-huh. we were coming into a pandemic. And it was really hard. And um, I got another dog about six weeks ago. And there was a moment when this pup arrived that I thought it was going to fill the void of the loss of my other dog. And it was it was like magical thinking. I didn't even know I was thinking that until the new dog arrived. And I realized, oh, I can love this dog, but this does not take the place of the loss. And I think this is an important piece to extrapolate into people that we can all love more than one person, but it doesn't mean the person we lost is going to be forgotten. You know? I, I would concur with you. And I think that is, you know, we've, we've replaced our dogs. We, we lost two Labradors this last year and we Oof. replaced it with a very small little, uh, I'm going to call her Chihuahua Terrier Benji mix, right? And she's adorable yeah. and she's stolen our lives. But the point I'm making is that you're right. All those fond memories you have of the love you had for whether it was a person or a pet or whatever it might have been, they're still there. And it's not like when you say yeah. release, it's releasing the grief around it and being okay with it and understanding that that's the natural process. We are all going to come to our finitude at some point. It's how right. we're choosing to deal with it. You know, and right. death and dying is another whole topic here. We're talking about grieving. But I do have one of Brown grieving that'll help to kind of wrap this up maybe for our listeners is, you know, if you look at all the things that in, in, in history, in our history, uh, Claire, um, there's been all kinds of periods of times of unrest and, you know, in the sixties and the Vietnam war. And I was reminded of this when somebody, I said to somebody, I've never seen so much decisiveness. And the guy said, well, did you forget about the sixties? Did you forget about this? And it was interesting how I had forgotten because it seems like today, and here's the question for you, there seems to be something much more personal about this challenge that we're all facing, whether it's, you know, the loss of healthcare, the loss of a home, the loss of a job, uh, what the, what the COVID uh, pandemic has brought us in the way of how we look at what we had and what we maybe don't have now, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. What advice would you give to the listeners to shift their perspective about the way they looked at, you know, I, I hear that divorce rates are up like crazy as a result of this. So mm-hmm. people are going through grieving of the loss of somebody because they couldn't get along or whatever it might have been. It might have been coming. It might have been that COVID actually right. pushed it over the top, right? Right. Yeah. So what advice would you give as a counselor from a, putting on your counselor's hat and your hat where you've seen thousands of people over the course of your life and things that you've said? What are some of the key things you would say to people today just to learn how to cope better and deal with the troubled times we are in? That's a big question. <laughs> um, I think I think the sort of the summation comment I would make is that I think our work at this point is to learn to tolerate and live with an enormous level of uncertainty that I think 
has always been there, but we the veil has been pulled off of it. Um, I'm thinking about the impact of climate change and what's coming down and how climate change actually brought about this pandemic mm-hmm. of fear and grief and illness and how, and we don't know what's coming. And I don't want to be doom and gloom, but the capacity to tolerate uncertainty is probably the biggest practice that we can strengthen in ourselves, I think, at this point, because nothing is given at this moment. Nothing. We can be sure of nothing except for what's in front of us right now. Well, that's a great bit of advice. And I actually believe, Claire, that what you say has always been. It's just that this pandemic has accentuated our understanding of what that is. Because if you went through life understanding that, you know, it's it's interesting. You've probably been to hundreds of meditation retreats, but I usually go to one on the Orcas Islands uh, with Joel and Michelle Levy, Dr. Joel and Michelle Levy. And one of the things um, that they tell a quick little story about the the monks that came over and they would stay with them. And the first thing they wanted was a watch. You may have heard this. And no. the, the watch was, at, and on their bedpost, they had a skeleton, and they put a watch on, and they'd never worn a watch. And they're like, oh, they wanted oh. a Western watch. And the reason they wanted the watch was to remind them of how much time they had left. Oh. Right? Yeah. And I think yeah. that that perspective that, you know, Hey, if you remind yourself of the gratitude for what you're given every day and that the uncertainty is in every moment that you can go through life with so much more joy being okay with the uncertainty, right? Well, I think, yes, and as you're talking, I was just thinking of one more thing. I was thinking about one of the ways I responded to this this pandemic in the face of just such overwhelm was how could I alleviate the suffering of those who are in my most immediate world? How -hmm. can I reach out to make other people's lives easier during this huge upsurge? And that has been in many ways comforting because it's given me a sense of feeling useful in the face of so much chaos. And it's the gestures are small, but they mean something to me, you know, well, you are making a difference and the fact that people can get this and I'm going to tell them the book is not a hard read. <laughs> it was due to come out October. You can pre-order this on Amazon and we're going to put a link to Amazon to do that. Um, what's the new release date, date now, Claire? Well, it's hard to know. On Amazon, it says October 15th, but I understand from the publisher that they're actually in the warehouse now. Whether they get to Amazon or not, uh, by the 12th. I'm not sure. So probably that's the date to follow. Okay. So for my listeners uh, that are listening and you want to pick up a small little book about uh, opening to grief and finding the way from loss to peace, uh, we've been on with Claire Willis. Um, and this book is has all kinds of accol- accolades from people in the Buddhist community, as well as other medical doctors and so on, um, you certainly will want to pick up a copy of this. 
Um, we will put a link to that Amazon link and uh, order it, and hopefully that book will come quickly. Um, is there also a, a Kindle version of this available right now? Yes. Yes. Okay. So if you want to get it and bring it down to your Kindle, great little read, a great opportunity, uh, awesome little things and ideas that you can do that um, – that they give you throughout the book, uh, things to practice um, and ideas that you can do. Claire, a pleasure having you on with our listeners this morning, speaking about opening to grief. Is there any one last thing that you'd like to leave with them before we uh, depart? The, the one thing I would say is that many of the endorsers referred to this book as a companion. And I think that was one of the things that we wanted. We wanted people to read it and feel like they had a friend in it and that they were less alone. It's one of those kind of books that you can just carry with you anywhere, right? I mean, it's not a yeah. big book. What, where, oh, this it's is, very small. Yeah, yeah it's and a small thin. book. And then easy to read, but packed full of ideas and ways in which you can learn to better cope with grief and deal with it. Claire, it's been a pleasure having you on. Namaste to you. Thank um, you so much, Greg. All the people that are there. Thanks so much. Okay.